0: Welcome to the 15 Past 15 podcast, season two. My name is Martin Dusenberry.
1: And I'm Birgit remmel Werner.
0: In this season, we're focusing on the theme of wealth and the writing of history. And we're de- delighted to be joined today by Dr. Jeremy Davis from the University of Leeds. Jeremy, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. So, when we think about wealth, uh, there are various different Uh, elements that come into play. We can think about the relationship between wealth and economic growth, and particularly our reliance on natural resources. We can think about wealth and labor. We've been thinking uh, over the last few days in this conference in Zurich, from which we're broadcasting today about wealth and knowledge, about how one measures wealth or distributes wealth in new ways, and of course there's wealth and inequalities. Um, But perhaps before we get into those sub-themes, we should talk a little bit about what actually this word wealth means and the fact that you are an english literature specialist uh, by training rather than a historian per se perhaps allows you to bring an extra perspective a uh, perspective to this could you say a little bit about the etymology of wealth or its relationship to uh, other words like richness or reichtum that we're talking about today
2: yes i was interested by the title of the conference reichtum richesse wealth the German and French words, of course, closely linked, the English word a bit of an outlier. Richness and wealth are very similar terms in modern English, but I think they do still preserve some differences. There's, it's more appealing, perhaps, to be wealthy than to be rich. Uh, The slogan tax the rich is more forceful than the slogan tax the wealthy would be. And I suppose the slight difference that modern English still preserves between richness and wealth does have something to do, as you suggest, with the etymology of the words. Reichtum and riches are related to um, words like reich or rex in Latin that have to do with power, with authority, with privilege. The ideas of wealth are more closely linked to notions of intactness, wholeness, healthiness, the idea of a commonwealth. And that slippage between richness and wealth as you move from language to language seems suggestive to me and indicative of the uh, um, interest that is involved in that word wealth you've chosen as the theme for the series.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. But another aspect that I find very interesting in your work is you're a literary historian, but then you wrote a book on the Anthropocene. So what made you write this book?
2: The honest and boring biographical answer is that I wanted a change. I would just finished working on a project that came out of my doctoral research, and I hit upon the idea of writing a short book that um, was about a topic I was interested in. Um, And I don't have a better answer really uh, to to why I wrote the book than that I was curious to think about. Uh, In fact, the idea of the Holocene was the starting point for the book. It wasn't originally uh, called, uh, or wasn't originally identified as a book about the Anthropocene. That term was just coming into prominence at the time when I was starting to write the book.
1: And how is this all connected to this idea of wealth? How do you write wealth, regional, national wealth, into the history of the Anthropocene?
2: Or vice versa? I suppose that ideas of wealth are always bound up with the social problems that are central to the idea of the Anthropocene, uh, the idea of Uh, inequalities and differentials in wealth that you were speaking about at the start um, is something that I think should not be incidental to the discourse of the Anthropocene. Uh, That is, I don't think you should start with an idea of the Anthropocene as the human era or the age of humans, as it's often understood, and then bolt on an acknowledgement of differentiated responsibilities, uh, of the uh, differing uh, ecological impacts of Alberta oil barons, on the one hand, and Malagasy subsistence fishers, say, on the other hand. Instead, I think that uh, an understanding of power relations, often mediated through uh, wealth and property, should be the starting point for the way we understand the transition that is captured in the word Anthropocene.
0: But that's very interesting, because certainly one way in which many scholars, practitioners, public intellectuals do think about the Anthropocene is to say that uh, it is a call to write history in a new way as the history of the human species Uh, and therefore actually it is the human age and as I understand it in your book, uh, The Birth of the Anthropocene from 2016, you're making a different argument which is that we should not be making an argument about humans as a whole but rather about human societies. Can you make the Clarify for us what this differentiation is that you're arguing.
2: Yes, that's absolutely the case and a very good summary, I think. Again, I suppose I return to my training in English and my uh, concern with the differences in shades of meaning within words. A great mistake with the discourse on the Anthropocene, I think, is to take the word Anthropocene for a concept, a singular concept that we might argue about. On the contrary, meaning is use, the word Anthropocene has been used in all sorts of different ways. And my concern in the book you refer to was with has been with one particular facet or use of the word Anthropocene. That's the use of the word among geologists and stratigraphers above all. The geological version of the Anthropocene is the one that I discuss there.
0: Yes, and as you m- make clear, geologists use uh, the idea of the scene and indeed of epochs in very specific ways that uh, us as historians tend to blur when we talk about eras and eons and and epochs and so on could you say a little bit more in detail about that
2: yes the word anthropocene has become part of a highly specialist and technical vocabulary used within geology geologists map the geological past as a series of nested time units like the reigns of monarchs within dynasties the uh, Smallest of the major set of units uh, is the age. A group of ages forms an epoch, a group of epochs forms a period, a group of periods form an era, and so on. The Anthropocene epoch then, belongs to a very particular place within the geologic timescale. It's one piece within the elaborate mosaic that geologists have divined in order to represent and classify the planet's history. The Anthropocene Epoch has to be understood, uh, again, as used by geologists, has to be understood in relation to the preceding geological epoch, the Holocene, the period since the end of the last glacial period, around 9,700 BC. Those two epochs, in turn, have to be understood in relation to the period of which they're a part, the Quaternary Period. And all those units have to be understood as part of the still broader pattern of geologic time. And so one of the arguments here is
0: um, that each of these epochs is in themselves uh, not a stable entity, but constantly under change. And uh, so the sort of simple assumption that we have a moment now of great uh, transition in the world's climate and so on uh, and that we can compare that to some period of 12,000 years of Holocene stability is one that you're arguing
2: against. Have I understood that correctly? Up to a point. The transition between the Holocene and the Anthropocene is real and important. It's certainly not the case that my work seeks to downplay the stakes or the scale of current environmental, climatic, biological, ecological changes, quite the reverse. But my argument has been that in order to understand and contextualize the terrifying crisis that we're confronted with in the present day, it's important to set it in the context of the destabilizing, uh, uncertain, contingent history of the planet as a whole, to understand our geological, planetary predicament as being the condition of living in a world that is prone to upheavals, to state shifts, to complex teleconnections and interactions and feedback loops between ecological and biological systems that can produce alarming transitions that uh, pose threats of various kinds to any kind of species or life world that inhabits that dangerous planet. That, it to me, seems to be a way not of uh, downplaying the dangers or the threats of the present or the importance of political action in response to those threats, but rather a way of understanding them in their fullness.
1: And with this understanding, this is where we historians come in, or what, what is the role of historians here in this process?
2: This is a great question, of course, to do with temporality and scale, the relationship between geo history, planetary history on the one hand, and what we might no- more normally understand as history on the other. I think that when we confront the relationship between geo history and other kinds of history, there are inevitably some consequences for history as it's normally understood and practiced. Those consequences mainly have to do with the question of whether or not we can place the human subject or human agency at the center of historical inquiry. Perhaps we need to be a little less like uh, Mark Bloch's ogre, um, smelling the scent of human flesh and knowing that that's where the task of the historian lies. But on the other hand, I don't think that 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 conjunction means we should give up on or abandon history on conducted on the level of decades and centuries and impose a more uh, sort of make geological history, an imperial conqueror that becomes the only sort of history that is now legitimate or relevant. Instead, I think we should uh, try to explore new ways of fitting together political history, social history, history on the human scale with history on a planetary or earth system scale.
0: But we are now back to talking about humans as a whole, uh, as opposed to the differentiation between human societies, which I think is a key argument of the book. And perhaps I could take you in a different direction and say, well, in order to avoid the danger of us talking about humans as a whole, uh, why don't we call it something else? Why don't we call it the capitalist scene? As some scholars, Jason Moore uh, among them, have argued, uh, and be much more clear that this uh, huge crisis that we're approaching is very much connected to the history of capitalism, uh, to particular societies and not to humans as a whole.
2: Now it's you challenging me on the importance of being careful about our words, and I think that's absolutely right. Perhaps I spoke too casually a moment ago about human scale history. That's equally, I suppose, whale scale history or chimpanzee scale history, the scale of uh, the organic lifespan. That's a concern that's close to the position of Jason Moore and other scholars who've developed and worked with the idea of the capitalist scene. Andreas Malm and Alf Hornborg are really important people to name at this point as well. I'm very sympathetic to the broad thrust of Moore's work from whom I've learned a great deal and the work of Malm and Hornborg and others as well. Their concern with Understanding the current state of the environment in political terms, indeed in in critical, in, in leftist terms, is one that I'm very sympathetic to. Their attempt to write a history of. The transition in global ecosystems that isn't Eurocentric, that is instead concerned at its root with power relations between social groups, with economics and the web of intersections between the biosphere and capitalism, is something in which I'm wholly in agreement. But you're pressing me to identify the point of disagreement, and that's certainly an important thing as well. Moore's word, Capitalocene, doesn't seem to me especially helpful. It's a parody, evidently, of the word Anthropocene. By Capitalocene, Moore means, as, as he's often said, the age of capital. So his word Capitalocene only works as a meaningful parody of the word Anthropocene if you think that the word Anthropocene means the age of humans, if you think that the word Anthropocene implies that we're all in it together, that we are a single unified human species, if the word Anthropocene doesn't mean that, then there's nothing to parody with these ungainly extra neologisms like Capitalocene or Technocene, Hornborg's term. So while I'm entirely sympathetic to Moore's account of—I won't say entirely sympathetic, but while I certainly think that his account of the age of capital has a great deal to offer, I don't think that framing uh, that account in terms of uh, hostility to the Anthropocene is the most productive way to take it. In some of his writings, Moore has distinguished between what he calls the geological Anthropocene and the popular Anthropocene, and indicated that his only disagreement is with the popular Anthropocene, which he describes as the most uh, bourgeois and neoliberal kind of thinking about the term. And as far as that's concerned, I'm happy to go along with him.
0: I suppose one of the things that comes up in the language of the capitalist scene however is a very explicit critique of to get back to the discussion of wealth of wealth creation of economic growth as it has been practiced over the last four or five hundred years particularly in northern europe and then spreading out to the rest of the world do you bring a similar critique of patterns of wealth creation Uh, In your own work on the Anthropocene, or do you see yourself as having a different position with relation to wealth?
2: Yes, that question of the novel status of wealth over the last four or five hundred years, as you say, seems to me to get to the heart of the matter. The more we look at the history of the Holocene, we can see a whole series of cycles of dramatic wealth creation taking place in various different regions of the world, in China, in Southwest Asia, especially in the early centuries of the state, the early millennia of the state, even. What's often thought to be radically new about the last four or five hundred years, of course, is a new way of Uh, or a new understanding of what wealth is and of how wealth should be created. And it seems to me that thinking about the Anthropocene is a useful way of framing precisely that novelty of a capitalist understanding of wealth as something that uh, constitutively expands itself. So what's new about the Anthropocene as distinct from the Holocene is not the sheer fact that there are rich societies, uh, rich people, but instead a new way of understanding wealth and a new place for wealth in history as a self-accumulating driver of uh, historical change through the expansion of capitalism's frontiers.
1: As a final question, I would like to get back to the idea of wealth and the writing of history. Recently, there has been a lot of talk about intellectual equality and the fact that only certain parts of the world can afford the luxury of dealing with the past, writing about the past. And with regard to the Anthropocene, It strikes me as particularly interesting that the part that is most affected by climate change, for instance, is the one that is least engaged in these discussions. What is your idea on that?
2: Yes, the least engaged in these discussions, but not the least important to these discussions by any means. We shouldn't think about the coming of the Anthropocene simply as a rippling out expansion of wealth, of using up natural resources. Instead, in order to give any kind of adequate account of what's really taking place, we need to understand the relationship between development and underdevelopment, between the richest parts of the world and the way in which they've become rich through impoverishing and extracting wealth from the parts of the world that have been disadvantaged by the transition to modernity. A simple example would be to think about the Industrial Revolution. In the early discourse on the Anthropocene, it was often believed that the Industrial Revolution simply began with some brilliant wealth-creating inventions in the British Isles and simply rippled outwards from there. A more adequate perspective drawn from drawing on the insights of economic history can remind us that the wealth of Britain depended crucially on the uh, slave plantations of the Caribbean and the American South. That uh, provided the cotton, uh, in the inputs of raw cotton that enabled and made possible the radically new forms of wealth creation associated with late 18th century and early 19th century Britain. So, in that way, wealth and poverty are closely coupled together. And it's that radical coupling of the two that enables the most dramatic ecological changes that we've wi- witnessed over recent centuries.
0: Jeremy Davis, thank you very much for being with
2: us today. Thanks very much for having me.